The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... The 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act is now going through the implementation process. Learn more about that process on ACB Reports for April 2014. Karen Peltz Strauss is Deputy Director of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission in Washington, D.C. She is instrumental in the process of implementing the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, or CVAA for short. During the ACB Legislative Seminar in February, she updated the group on the process of implementing this powerful law. She was introduced by ACB's Eric Bridges. Our next speaker is no stranger to this audience and uh, no stranger to some of the issues that we care most deeply about. Access to technology, access to uh, entertainment, a little thing called the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act that is still going through its implementation. Quite a law. It has all sorts of tentacles extending from phones to tablets, computers to what we would refer to as the home theater environment, your television, your cable box, your DVD player. All these devices that we have in our homes or in our pockets right now. But what I thought we would do today is uh, talk a bit about the implementation that has taken place since the last time our speaker was here. And most of that deals with the Title II component of the implementation of the CVAA. And the Title II component is really more of the TV interface type stuff that you all are well aware of. I appreciate Karen Peltz-Strauss making time for us in her busy schedule to give an update on what's taking place and what will be taking place. Without any further ado, I present to you the Deputy Chief of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission, Karen Pell Strauss. Thank you. Thank you. We're really excited this year because we finished the implementation of the CVAA. Three and a half years worth of approximately 10 rulemakings. I've never seen an agency move this fast. We made every single deadline with the exception of one, which you might guess why. That's right, a little thing called the government shutdown. We were on target to make the full deadlines, but they shut us down. So we were a couple of weeks late with the very last item, but I don't really count that. I like to say we made every deadline that we could make through the heroic and Herculean efforts of around 100 people at the FCC. So I come to you as the FCC spokesperson, and while I helped out on a lot of the proceedings, by no means did I do all of them. There was heavy lifting done by so many people, and you should just know that this is an agency that not only has been dedicated to implementing this law in a way that will be fully effective and successful for everybody here, 
and everybody in the disability community in the past, but in fact, we now have a new chairman who you may be aware is uh, Chairman Thomas Wheeler, who has indicated his interest in going forth as the disabilities chairman. And already he has um, exemplified and personified his dedication to these issues through something that your community is not directly affected by, it, but just this past Thursday, the commission adopted closed captioning quality standards for the first time in 10 years. That proceeding had been sitting around for 10 years, and we talked to him about it, and he came in and in four months got this thing out. So we're headed for four years of continued progress. I am convinced that this man will do a remarkable job. I can't say enough how impressed I am at how he has taken ownership of these issues literally upon his arrival. So the biggest thing that we did in Title II this year, Title II of the CBAA, which is the short name for the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, is access to televised emergency information. We already had rules requiring visual access to audio information, but as you know, right now, and our rules are still in effect because these haven't gone in effect, if there is an interruption in a program, if it's not a news program and there's just an interruption, all you're going to get are the beeps and the tones, and there's no audio information that follows it on television that you can rely on. Once you hear those beeps, you have to go someplace else. So what these rules do is, beginning in May of 2015, they require that there still be those tones, so that you know that there's an emergency, but that they be followed by audio information. It applies to any emergency that affects life, health, safety, and property, all kinds of weather conditions, hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, heavy snows, even applies to school closings, civil disorders, power failures. What will happen is once the tones sound, the information will be provided auditorially and it will be provided on the second audio channel. You'll hear the tones and turn to the second audio channel. What's nice about these rules is that once there's an emergency, the emergency information must supersede all other programming on the second audio channel. The second audio channel is also used for video description, and sometimes it's used for Spanish language programming. If it is already being used for Spanish language programming, there's a conflict with video description, and some of our rules allow the Spanish programming to preempt the video description. But when it's an emergency, the emergency rules prevail. The emergency information must be conveyed twice, so once you turn to that second audio channel, you're going to get the information in full at least twice. So I think basically that's more or less the thrust of what you need to get from this section. If there's visual but non-textual emergency information, such as maps or other graphic displays, then the oral description must accurately, effectively convey those critical details as well. It encourages covered entities to provide a point of contact as well as other information about how to seek assistance on their websites and other informational materials. And this has nothing to do, by the way, with the emergency alert system, with EAS that some of you are familiar with. This is completely separate. The other thing that our rules do, what I just talked about was the program content, but our rules that we issued in 2013 also require that to the extent feasible by May 2015, television apparatus that receive or playback or record video programming with sound also must decode and make secondary audio streams available. 
to facilitate both access to emergency information and the transmission and delivery of video description. In other words, it's not only the content, the devices that you buy, the televisions and the set-top boxes, etc., they have to be able to convey the secondary audio channel. Covers apparatus with a picture screen of any size, but if the screen is less than 13 inches, it's only required if achievable. So if you're talking about a laptop or a tablet that's smaller than 13 inches, it's going to have this achievability defense. I'm not too concerned about that because I think that with software, there's a lot that's achievable out there. And it also covers apparatus that playback or record video programming. So it's going to cover you know, DVRs and other types of recording devices. It also covers software integrated into covered devices. It also applies to mobile DTV apparatus, and it allows text-to-speech capability by the covered apparatus, but that's not actually required. Finally, the order that we issued has attached to it a notice of proposed rulemaking, which the comment period already closed, but we haven't resolved this yet, so you're always able to provide late-filed comments or what's called ex parte comments. In other words, just tell us what you think whenever you want. And that explores whether the FCC should require broadcast receivers to tag audio streams for people who are blind or visually impaired to ensure that consumers can find and locate those streams. In other words, to make it easier to find the second audio information. It also asks whether we should require entities to provide customer support services to help them navigate between the main and secondary audio streams because we know that this has been a problem And finally, we also, in a different proceeding, which I'm going to talk about in a second, ask whether or not the requirements for emergency access gives us the authority to require apparatus, in other words, TVs, to make the secondary audio stream accessible through a mechanism that's reasonably comparable to a button, a key, or an icon. Okay, so what does that mean in English? It means should you be able to access this easily, for example, with a button on the remote? We know it is not easy to find the secondary audio channel a lot of times. And so what this is designed to do is to get input on whether or not we have the authority to make it easier. There was a provision in the CVAA that was very explicit on closed captioning, basically having a button like on the remote for closed captioning. The law was not as clear on accessing video description or the second audio channel. So we're asking whether we have enough authority to do that. Those issues have not yet been decided. The next big thing that we decided in this past year, just released in October, had to do with user interfaces. What this does, obviously, when televisions were analog, and we all, not everybody here, but I can tell you I'm included amongst those people that used to have to get up out of my seat and just turn the dial, Life was a little bit easier, right? I mean, you had a tactile dial and you just turned it. Well, I don't have to tell you all how difficult it has gotten to be able to have an interface with television with on-screen menus. So, as you know, the CVAA required user interfaces that were accessible to people who cannot see. And this year we adopted rules under this section. There's actually two sections. One has to do with navigation devices like the set-top boxes that you use for your cable companies. The other has to do with televisions. We issued rules on both, and we based a lot of what we did on an advisory committee's recommendation 
which you may remember, I've mentioned it in the past, the Video Programming Accessibility Advisory Committee that was required by the CBAA. And it's funny because you know, you probably know that Eric and I used to work on the steering committee of the Coalition of Organizations for Accessible Technology that originally drafted the CVAA. Initially, the requirement for an advisory committee was not in the CVAA at all. And when it was thrown in, many of us kind of thought it was a delaying tactic, you know, put a lot of requirements at the front end, and that way the law won't actually become effective until much later. Well, it turns out that these advisory committees were fantastic because by having the industry and the consumers sit down and work out what needed to be in the rules, it made our job at the FCC so much easier. And so even though there was a lot of dissension and conflict, I'd say, in what we call the VPAC, that committee, it's nicknamed VPAC, um, nevertheless, they came out with like great stuff because especially on captioning, I mean, we basically took wholesale what they said. But even in this, they came up with 11 essential functions that had to be accessible. And we basically just cut and pasted those into our rules. So let me read to you what will be accessible. And this is actually not going to be required until, I think it's November 2016 or around that time. So it's going to be a little while. But what we're finding is that a lot of the companies aren't waiting. That's what's really nice about this law because it's not hard to do. Some of them are already starting to implement these things. The 11 functions are power on and off, volume adjust and mute, channel and program selection, display channel and program information, the configuration and the setup. That's like um, setting up the video display and audio settings, setting up the preferred language. The next one is closed captioning control. The next one is closed captioning options. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because this was actually really designed for people who cannot see, but it was decided that because deafblind people are also going to be using this, we wanted to make sure that options were available or displays were accessible to that community as well. Um, video description controls, this will enable the user to enable or disable the output of video description, to change from the main audio to the secondary audio stream, and then back to the main audio stream as well. The next one is display of the configuration info. This shows the user how preferences are currently configured. The tenth is the playback functions like pause, play, rewind, fast rewind, etc. And then the final one is input selection. That allows you to change from your television program to your gaming, to your DVR, your VCR, etc. All of those 11 have to be accessible via audio output on your TVs, but for your navigation device, nine of them have to be accessible via audio output. And the only reason for that is that some of these are not considered on-screen text menus and guides, and I think those are the on-off and volume control. And those still have to be accessible. They're just not required to be accessible via audio output, and that's just because of the way the law was written. But in the end, I think what's going to happen is it's probably going to be made accessible the same way for everything. That's, that's my take on it. Section 205 with respect to navigation devices. The manufacturers that provide these devices have to make a good faith effort to have retailers make these devices available to people to the same extent as other devices are available. What we're hoping is that everything's mainstream, so this isn't an issue. But if there are separate devices, they have to be made equally available. 
The order concludes that any means that an entity uses to accept requests from you may not be more burdensome than the way they would get requests from somebody else for a navigation device. So they can't make you jump through hoops in order to get one of these devices. Even though the navigation is upon request, that's another big distinction. The, na- the, the set-top boxes are upon request. The television devices is more of a universal design feature. The set-top boxes also, they can provide you with a separate solution. So arguably, they can like say to you, here's a tablet, and this tablet is accessible to you, but they can't charge you more for it. And the functions in the device that they give you have to be accessible. This was considered one of the most complicated rulemakings ever to be written by the Media Bureau at the FCC. Because of the way the law was written and because of the nuances of it, it's been considered really um, to go down in history as one of the most complicated. If you require a device that is separate than the one that everybody else is getting, it has to be provided to you within a reasonable time, which is defined as a period of time comparable to the time in which they generally provide set-top boxes to people who aren't blind or visually impaired. And if they have to give you a higher-end device, because that's the device that's accessible, they can't charge you more if that's the only device that would provide you with the accessibility. The covered entity's chosen manner of compliance involves a software solution that must be operated on a third-party device, like a laptop, a tablet, or if additional services are required to make use of that device, then this is considered what's called an other solution, and the entity must provide that solution, which is the software, the third-party device, and any service needed to use the accessibility features to you at no additional charge. I think it's an extraordinary ruling. So many people worked on this. There were times where we would sit in a room and there would be no fewer than like 15 attorneys trying to work this all out. There's a further notice on this as well. Again, the comment period has closed, but we invite you to always comment anytime you want to, up to the time that we're actually deciding it. Some of the things that we're asking in that further notice are how to implement the requirement that apparatus make appropriate built-in functions usable by people who are blind or visually impaired. Usable generally in our rules has meant access to information, documentation, and customer service types of things, and we didn't cover that in this, so we ask about that. Uh, We ask about whether or not we have authority to require access to video description and emergency programming through a button, key, or icon. That's in this proceeding. Also, whether we should have notification requirements by cable companies and satellite companies and other such entities to inform you about the availability. I mean, you all know, come May 2015, I would be surprised if anybody in this room does not try to get one of these accessible devices, but there's going to be notification that's required. And hopefully your organization and others uh, serving the blind and visually impaired community are going to make the effort to get the word out that these accessible set-top boxes are available and also that TVs are available. But we are asking whether the companies that make these and give them out are also required to provide notification. We also tentatively conclude that the manufacturers should be required to inform consumers about the availability of these devices and must prominently display accessibility information on their websites. And finally, we asked about whether there should be notification requirements for manufacturers of television as well. So those are the Title II issues. 
Just really quickly, I wanted to just go over with you the fact that beginning October of 2013, our um, rules on advanced communication services went into effect. So this means that all kinds of laptops and cell phones and computers and tablets must be accessible to you for the purposes of conducting communications with other people, email, instant mail, chat, you name it. And then in addition, on April 26, 2013, we adopted new rules requiring access to internet browsers on mobile phones. And that also went into effect October of 2013. The great thing about this is that mobile phone web browsers now must be accessible to people who cannot see for all purposes, not just for communication services. Anytime you want to access a web browser on a mobile phone, it has to be accessible to you. That's Section 718. Section 716 covers web browsers on devices used for advanced communication services. So the distinction is that if it's a mobile phone, then the web browser has to be accessible for all purposes, but it only applies to this community. The other section says that web browsers have to be accessible to anyone with any disability, but it's limited to communication services. Okay, so it's broader for your population for mobile devices. So that, it's in effect now. If there's anybody in this room that has a mobile phone that's not working for them, you have to file a complaint with us. Don't wait. After you leave here, go and file a complaint with us. Every phone has to be accessible now. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. The only thing is, though, before you file a complaint, you have to come to us and ask for dispute assistance. So we have this process just before complaints called requests for dispute assistance. And that means you come to our disability rights office and we try to help you work it out with the company. We have 30 days to work it out with the company. If nearing the end of that period, you want to give it another 30 days, you say to us, I want to extend the request for dispute assistance period. We can extend it for 30-day increments. If you say, we're not making any progress, I've had it, I'm fed up, I'm moving to complaint, we can help you and you can file an informal complaint and it goes straight to our enforcement bureau. This is a complete change from the past where some of you filed complaints and they sat and they sat and they sat. These go straight to our enforcement bureau. They have 180 days to respond with an order. They have staff ready. We have not had a chance. We have not had an opportunity yet to hand them over any complaints. We've been resolving them within the period, or, or some of them are still open. However, if you do have complaints, we have this 180-day period, so it's very exciting. How to file it. You have to file it by going to our website. Well, you can go to www.fcc.gov, but I don't have the full extension, so I can get it to Eric, and he can publicize it. It's a long extension, so um, we'd want to send you the link. Uh, any entity that's found to be in noncompliance can get fines assessed against them up to $100,000 for each day of continuing violation, a maximum of $1 million. And we can also require compliance in the next generation of equipment within a reasonable time, and we can assess damages. So this means that you should be able to input the URL into your address bar, identify and activate home, back, forward, refresh, reload, and stop, view status information, activate zooming, et cetera, you, you name it. You should be able to do it. 
finally, I just want to mention two things, actually. One, I want to just mention, some of you may have been aware that we had a petition for an exemption, or waiver, rather, for basic e-readers. The company, a coalition of e-reader manufacturers made up of Amazon, Kobo, and Sony argued that basic e-readers, now these are not the tablets where, like Kindle Fire, where you have a lot of different access to communication features. They were really talking about the very basic e-readers that don't have much functionality for the internet. They argue that they should be exempt from our rules on advanced communication services, the CVAA's rules. Um, there is a provision in the law that allows for a waiver of these requirements for what's called multi-purpose equipment that are capable of advanced communication services, but that are designed primarily for purposes other than advanced communication services. So we looked very carefully at the petition, and after examining all the arguments, and I wish I could go into them, but I know my time is limited, we gave them a one-year waiver only. I think that this is probably a victory for this community, to be honest with you, because they made a very persuasive case that these particular devices are hardly used for advanced communication services, but we felt that with the ever-changing nature of e-readers and the increasing reliance on mobile communications through devices like e-readers, that we just could not grant them more than a year. So they were not too happy with that. Thank you. And then finally, I just wanted to mention, many of you know that we have a National Deafline Equipment Distribution Program that's been in effect for two years, since July of 2012. That authorizes $10 million annually for communications equipment to low-income people who are deafblind. We have programs across all the 50 states. They've been giving thousands of pieces of equipment to hundreds of deafblind people over the last couple of years wonderful accolades that we've gotten from various people all over the country who have now been able to communicate. The program that we have in place is a pilot program. We're, we're not ending it at all, but we're just, we didn't really know what we were doing when we wrote these rules. We've never done a distribution program, so we kind of took some stabs in the dark and said, we're going to call this a pilot program. We're going to put it in place for two years and extend it for a third year before we adopt our final rules or gave us the option to extend for a third year and we just did. In February 7th, we issued a public notice extending the pilot program for a third year. And then during the next year, we'll be drafting final rules to make the program permanent. It's a requirement under the CVAA. So um, there's no question that we were always going to make it permanent. But we're going to keep the, the current program going. So that concludes my overview. And next year, Eric, I'd like about two hours to go into <laughs> Thank you. It was uh, wonderful to be here, as usual. That was Karen Peltz-Strauss, Deputy Director of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission. She was recorded during the legislative seminar of the American Council of the Blind in February of this year. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. 
Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.